so this week we are uh, starting in on our uh, sermon series that will uh, take us through uh, into Advent. And so uh, if you have not noticed, um, as we go through the fall, uh, we kind of end up in the same place, which is going into uh, the Old Testament. And we have spent the past few years in the Old Testament in the fall. And so this year, again, we will do that. And one of the things that I really like about it is we kind of move through the Old Testament very quickly, but hitting some of these really important stories and hitting them in a little bit different ways. And so a couple years ago, uh, we looked at Genesis chapter one at the creation story there. This year, uh, today, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter two. And so it kind of gives us a balance as we walk through some of these stories. Uh, I sent out a letter this week, and hopefully you, you got it. Hopefully you read it a little bit better than my family uh, did, because I don't know if anybody even looked at the letter that I spent time writing. But I told a story, just kind of, I know you all read it, but I'll just kind of give you the brief version of the story that I told in it. Uh, but it comes from Scott Daniels, who is our, uh, one of our newly elected general superintendents. And uh, he tells a story from when he was a teaching assistant at Fuller Theological Seminary, and one of his teachers, as they were going through the Old Testament, the, the professor had made the statement to them that when we get into these passages, and especially these very early passages in the Old Testament, that we're still trying to figure out who God was. And one of the things that uh, this professor had made the statement that is that the, the people of God in these stories, they're kind of looking for those places, and he called them master detectives of finding God's action in our world. And then he does this, this beautiful job that I'd put in the letter, and I, I quoted it in the letter, and I'm just kind of doing it off the top of my head now. But he did this beautiful job of going through and telling the different stories of the Old Testament to say that there is a man and a woman, Abraham and Isaac in the desert, and she gets this, the news that we're going to read next week, the news that she's pregnant. And the people look around and say, how can this be? And the people of God repeat a mantra. It's him again. The creator of the universe, it's him again. And we can go through and we see these stories, and these stories flow all through our Bibles. And the reason I think this is an important kind of statement for us and why I want to not just tell you about it through a letter, but also this morning to remind you of it, is that I think one of the things that we need in our world more than anything else is the people of God to be able to look around to, to become master detectives, to see how God is working in our world, and to be able to tell the world, this is who God is, this is how God acts, it's him again. It's the creator of the universe. And to be able to share and to tell people, this is who God is, this is what he does, this is what God's action looks like in our world. And I think part of that, of, of us doing that and learning how to do that is to see these stories, these stories of the Old Testament, that are reminders to us of this is what God's action looks like. And so that's going to kind of be our theme as we go through this uh, and as we go through these stories. And that's the, the title there of the sermon series, Watching for His Leading, Watching for How He is Working in the World. And so today I want to, uh, we're going to start at one of the beginning stories, Genesis chapter 2. If you know a little bit about Genesis chapter 2, uh, it is sometimes looked down upon because if you look at the beginning of Genesis, a lot of people say there are two accounts of creation. So Genesis chapter 1 is the account of creation that most of us are very, very familiar with. The story of in the beginning, 
And we go through the beginning and we hear the words of God day after day and it was good. And these things are repeated to us. And then we get to chapter two and the story is retold, but the story is retold in a different way. Now, for some people, this is problematic. For me, it's not problematic. Because we understand that when we tell stories, and especially in a world that was living through an oral tradition, they didn't write these things down. They told them generation after generation. They told these stories sitting around the fire at night. They didn't have America's Got Talent to watch. All they had to do was to tell the stories. And they would tell these stories to one another. And we know from the Gospels, if you go and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read the story of the resurrection, every single one of those stories is a little bit different. Is that problematic? It's not. It's part of an oral tradition, and it's part of a story, and it's part of understanding that that these men that wrote these stories down saw some of these things from different ways. And today is another one of those. I believe, uh, as we're going to read the first two verses that we read, verses 4 and 5, you're going to see that's one big run-on sentence. If you've ever had to transcribe someone talking, you realize that we talk very differently than we write. And so we can even see some of those relics, I think, in this because it's way too long of a sentence. Uh, and you'll, you'll see some of those in some of these passages. So let's walk through. We'll, I'm going to read this whole passage, and then we're going to uh, come back. We're going to talk about kind of, and I'll talk about how, we'll, how we're going to talk about it. So verse 4. So Genesis chapter 2. Verse 4 is where we will start. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had grown, had yet grown on the land, and no plant in the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, but there was, uh, there was no man to work the ground. But a mist would come up from the earth and water the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord caused it to grow out of the ground, every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it was divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, there was, uh, where there was gold. Gold from the land is pure, from that land is pure. Um, Belium and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris and runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. These don't seem like important verses, do they? But life comes from what? From water. We've talked about that. This is a, a story of water at this point. The Lord gave, or the, or sorry, verse 15 The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. 
I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the air, to every wild animal. But the man had, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man in, into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she has been taken from man. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds to his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and the wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So there's a, a point um, that we kind of need to, to deal with, all right? I'm going to kind of split my sermon into two pieces. There's going to be the first half is kind of a teaching piece. It's something we need to talk about. And then the second half is really the sermon, all right? The first half with the teaching piece, part of the issue is if we go through this narrative lectionary that we have been going through, this is our fourth year. So we will come back to this passage in four years from now, and we'll be looking at the same passage, and I might even give you the same speech. But the way I look at it is we are at this passage, and so we need to have a conversation about this passage. All right, there's something here that we need to deal with. And so I want to deal with it here. I don't want to just skip over it, but it doesn't really fit in my sermon, but we need to talk about it. All right, so let's look at verse uh, 18. And if we just kind of leave that up on the screen, it said, then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I want to talk about today this word helper and just kind of share a little bit uh, with you about it. But if, if you follow it along the story, kind of think through what happened. So God says here, I want, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. And then we have the story of Adam naming the animals. And I think in a lot of ways, we don't pick it up, but the Hebrew scholars that I read or I listen to say, this is a this is kind of a funny passage. This little piece of the story is humorous. And so you hear this story, and so what, what's going on in the story is, is there is Adam, and animals are brought, or the way I envision it, animals coming in front of Adam. So you could see the cow coming in front of Adam, big hooves, this huge cow. And God's saying, all right, what are we going to call this one? A cow. All right. What do you think? And Adam says, well doesn't correspond to me. And then another animal comes in and Adam's like, I don't know what this is. Where does it live? God's like, well, it lives on the ground. And Adam says, well, it sure is ugly. What about a groundhog? And then God brings another animal and Adam says, oh, that's, this is a trick question. This is the same animal you just showed me. And God's like, no, 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 no. That animal lives on the ground. This animal lives on the ground in the mountains. So Adam's like, okay, what about a mountain groundhog? And God's like, nope. You need a better name. And Adam's like, what about a marmot? God's like, I don't know what it means. It sounds good to me. And Adam says, but you know what? 
doesn't correspond to me. And so this goes through, we could go through, and I could name animals all day, but they go through all of these animals. But we get down to the end, and Adam says, the, these animals, they, don't, they, they aren't the one created for me. They don't correspond to me. And God has a desire to do something for Adam here, to make him a helper. Now, the Hebrew word here for helper is the word azer. And it's normally just translated helper or ally. So let's look at, look at verse 20. So we see it twice. Verse 18, and then we go down to verse 20. They've gone through all the livestock. Man gives names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal, which this whole scene just is crazy to me because it's how long did this take? Goes through all of it. But for the man, no, and here we have the same word used again, no azer was found corresponding to him. So azer, helper or ally. Now, this, this is what I want to talk to you about. There are two big misconceptions with this word. In these words, there are things you can look online and there can people that tell you all kinds of things about this passage. And I think a lot of the things that people say about this passage can lead to a lot of problems. There are things people say about this word that lead to problems, that lead to abuse. And it's something that we need to understand what's going on as the people of God. So this word, azer, helper, ally. So misconception, we're going to talk about two misconceptions. The first misconception is, what a lot of people say is, well, if I'm a man, I was here first, and you were created to be my helper. Thus, I'm above you, and you're subordinate to me, because you're my helper. You get it? How did we get here? Well, I'm the helper. I'm greater than my, or I'm the, I'm the man. I'm greater than my helper, so thus you are subordinate to me. That's misconception number one. Why do I say it's a misconception? This word azer is used in our Old Testaments 21 times. We just read two of them. Of those 21 times, 17 of the 21 are used in a particular context. So I want to talk and I'm going to go through, we're going to go through three passages real quick because I want you to see the context of how this word is used 17 out of 21 times. The first passage, Psalm 33, says, I will wait for the Lord for he, who is he? God. I will wait for the Lord for he, the Lord, is our azer, our help and shield. Let's go to another time this word is used. Psalm 115, Israel, trust in the Lord, for he, who is he? God, is their azer and shield. In the next verse, the same passage, the very next verse, house of Aaron. So the psalmist is calling out the groups he's looking at. Israel, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, for he, God, is their azer and shield. And then we do it one more time, verse 11 you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. For he, who is he? God. All right, y'all, there's a pattern, if y'all haven't noticed. He is their azer, their help. Let's go to Psalm 1, uh, 121. I lift my eyes, one of my favorite psalms. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where will my azer 
come from. Verse 2, my azer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So an azer, in this context, refers to God more than it refers to women. But what I want you to hear is, there are people that say, well, Azer puts women subordinate to men because women are the helper. The problem is, scripturally speaking, 17 times the scripture refers to God as the Azer. Do you hear it? So when we say that women are subordinate to men because they are the Azer, we also, if we're going to be scripturally accurate, we're also saying that God is subordinate to men. Women, that's where you laugh. Because we do not believe that. And if you believe that, we need to have a conversation about that. So Azer, better defined in this misconception number one, Azer is a helper or ally, but Azer in this context is someone who drops everything and comes running when a cry of distress goes out. God says what? I want Adam to have a helper. Corresponding to him, someone who drops everything and comes running when Adam cries out in distress. Now to me, guys, that's a way more beautiful picture of what women are than someone subordinate to us. It's also a much more scriptural picture of what a woman is. So that's misconception number one. Let's go to misconception number two. In verse 22, then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from man into a woman and brought her to the man. So misconception in this passage number two is, is that women are created from men. Therefore, women are subordinate to men because they came out of men. Okay? Let me just take a moment to go through the logic of this. So what we're saying is, is that women were created of men, therefore men are greater. So whatever you are created from is greater than who you are. Did, I, did that make any sense? So whatever we're created from, if I'm here, if, if I was created from something, it's above me. That's the logic. Everybody with me? There's a problem. The problem is we can go back 15 verses to verse 7. What does verse 7 say? And the Lord God formed man out of dirt. So, men, if we're greater than women because women were formed out of us, then if we're going to use that logic, then dirt is greater than us. And Rita laughed. <laughs> but, that, it's, but that's the logic here. That, that's not what's going on here. Dan Boone, in his book dealing with human sexuality, makes an incredible statement about this passage. And the statement that he makes is this, is that women were formed from man's side, not from man's foot for us to step on, from our side, because they're right next to us. 
And Dan Boone goes on to say to us and to remind us that when we talk about marriage, marriage is more than just a covenant, though it is that. It's more than just a contract, though in many ways, legally, it is that. But there is a bond that goes back from the very beginning of creation between a man and a woman. And it is a beautiful, beautiful bond. And so if misconception number one said to us that our understanding is, is that an azer is someone who hears the distress and comes running, the second misconception is a reminder to us that this creature, woman, is fundamentally like me in a way that nothing else is. Ladies, write that down and remember that, that you are fundamentally like your husband in a way that nothing else in the world is. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so these misconceptions are sometimes kind of used in society and, and used as opportunities to, to push women down. And I, I think you understand, I don't agree with them at all. If we read this properly, if we understand all of this in the context of what's going on, this is a beautiful, beautiful passage. And a beautiful passage of the relationship between men and women, and it should be celebrated as something that is as beautiful as it truly is. All right, so that's teaching number one. We're gonna move to the sermon. Everybody good? All right, everybody learned something, I hope. All right, everybody gonna hug your spouse a little bit tighter? Yes, all right, okay, let's go on. So if we, if we look at this passage, we're completely shifting gears, but if we look at this passage as, uh, as kind of different scenes that are going on, scene number one is versus, uh, is what we've kind of, sorry, scene number one is verses 15 through 17, and then the scene that we just looked at, it's kind of the scene that falls in the middle. So we're going to go back and look at the first scene. So first scene, verses 15 through 17, the second scene, scene is 18 through 25, and then the third scene of this story we didn't read today, which is chapter three, verses one through seven. So we kind of have three things that are going on. Now, I just want you to take note because we're gonna end up there, but notice how the end of second scene, sorry, the end of the second scene ends, that's a very weird sentence, how that scene ends in verse 25, uh, it won't be up on the screen, but verse 25 says, both the man and the wife were naked, yet felt no shame. End of scene number two, all right? End of scene number three, we jump over to verse seven in chapter three, the eyes, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. So those are kind of the, the ends of both of those scenes. And hopefully you see that they're, they're related in how the story is told. But I wanna focus on this very first scene. So verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work and to watch over it. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So in this story, these three verses give us an incredible amount of information of what it is to be human. 
and we just kind of move past them very quickly. I want to spend the rest of my time just talking about this. In this this story, verse 15, we are given a job. We're given a vocation that we are brought into. And if you even go back, it even says, why was there nothing on the earth? Because there was no one to work it. And then verse 15, and men, if you were in men's Bible study Wednesday night, we talked about this passage. The Lord God took the man and placed him on the gar- in the Garden of Eden to work it, to, walk o- to watch over it. We are given a vocation. And then in the next verse, we are given permission. So God says in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. Okay? We are given permission. Our job, our vocation relates to provision. We work the ground, we're provided for. You were created by God and you are created out of the overflow of God's goodness. And God says it is good. We are provided for, we are taken care of. In Psalm 24, which we usually stop at Psalm 23, but Psalm 24 verse one, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. We are given a vocation, but we are given permission, work it. You can eat of any of it. And and we are given life through this provision. And God says it is good. Then in verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for on that day you eat it, you will certainly die. Verse 17, we are given prohibition or constraint. We aren't given the details. We don't really understand, and we still don't understand anything about this tree. For most of us, we think of an apple. We don't know anything about the tree. We aren't given anything that's kind of going on. All that we have is God making a statement and a requirement of obedience. That's all we're given. We're given a vocation. We're given permission. And we're given constraint. That's what we are given. Now, part of the problem is when we tell this story, for most of us, we focus on the prohibition or the constraint. We don't normally put this story, we don't normally understand this story inside that there are other things going on. There's vocation, there's freedom. There are other things going on in this story. So let me say this to you. This is where everything kind of comes together. The primary human task for you as humans, our primary human task is to find a way to hold all three of these purposes together. To live a life where we are given a job, where we are given a vocation, but we also understand that you are given freedom. And inside of that freedom, there are also things that we don't do. Our task as humans is to learn how to pull these things together. And so most of us, we kind of know what the next piece of the story, so just listen to these words. They won't be up on the screen, but I want you to to hear these words. Chapter three, verse two, the woman said to the serpent, 
We may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will certainly die. Okay, don't, don't miss what's, what's going on here. I just said to you, we are given a task. To be human is to find a way to hold vocation, freedom, and constraint together. Right? Here's the problem. What the serpent does in chapter 3 is the serpent says to Eve, do you really need all three? Do you really need God's constraint upon your life? Can, can you really trust God in the vocation that you have been given? Can you really trust God in the freedom that you have been given? Can you really trust God? Because I think what God just wants to do is to tell you not to do things because God likes to torture you. He's not telling you the truth. And Eve has these three things. Am I going to hold these three things in balance in my life? So what happens? The serpent says, no, <laughs> you'll not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll, you'll have real freedom because you won't be constrained by a God that tells you what to do. You can do whatever you want. But the human life, to live as people under God's authority, is to live as people of vocation. For people to understand that where freedom comes from is not from me doing what I want to do. Freedom does not come from walking away from prohibition. What freedom comes from is learning to walk in trust with God. We focus on the things that God tells us not to do, but we miss so often the things that God has told us to do. The way that God wants us to live, and from the very beginning, I just lost my shoe, from the very beginning, we are called to be together, and we are called to be a people who balance these things together. Think just for a moment, we're going to be walking through these stories because this is going to kind of color all of our stories as we walk through the Old Testament. But when we get to October, we're going to be with David and Bathsheba. What's the story of David and Bathsheba about? He's given a job. What's his job? To be the king. He's given freedom to do what? To rule God's people. But he is given prohibition. He's given a constraint. And what does David decide to do? You know what? I think I'd rather spend time with Bathsheba because I'm the king and freedom is given to the king and I can do what I want to do. And he loses the balance of vocation, of freedom, and constraint, or God's constraint. And so the question that we have and the question that we have to kind of wrestle with as the people of God is, how do I live in the balance of vocation, freedom, and God's prohibition? 
How, how do I learn to live in that balance? How do I learn to walk through these things? And I'm glad you asked because I'd like to answer that for you. And for me, it comes down to us understanding how we answer these questions. What is our vocation? What does freedom actually look like? And what happens when we lose sight of the constraint that God has put on our lives? And I think we can begin to understand these by a couple different passages in the New Testament. One of those passages is one that I absolutely love that y'all have heard me preach on before, and I'm going to repeat some things here in just a moment, and I know I'm going to repeat them. So I'm not losing my mind. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says to us, everything is from God. Okay? Everything. Everything that we see, everything that we have, everything that we own, that we think we own, everything is from God who has reconciled himself through Christ and given us a job, a vocation. What is it? The ministry of reconciliation. Now, I know, and this is where I'm repeating myself, because I know this is a big church word, that sometimes we think, I don't, John, I don't have a clue what ministry of reconciliation is. And if you remember me talking about this, just use it to reaffirm. But let me tell you, what does it mean to have, what, what is ministry of reconciliation? Let's talk about the word, root word reconcile, all right? Friend A and friend B, these are your, your two best friends, okay? Friend A and friend B. They had a disagreement. They're not talking to each other. They're mad. You want to do what? You want to help them reconcile, to be back into conversation, to be back into relationship. And so you, as the third party, come in and say, person A, you think person B wronged you, but I want to help you come back together. Or person B, you think person A wronged you, I want to help you come back together. I want to restore, to reconcile this relationship. And so what Paul tells us is that what happened in the world is, is man, that's us, and God were separated. And a third party entered in. Who was the third party? Jesus. Christ enters in and says, I want to get the two of you back together. And what I love about this passage is, is that Paul reminds us what we are called to do as the people of God is that the world and God are separate. And that one of the greatest things we can do in our lives, the job that we have been given, is to help the world and God come back together. Now, we don't do this alone, and that's the beauty of it, because if we had to do it alone, we would be even worse than we are now. But we get to do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. We get to do it with what Christ has done and what, the, what he did on the cross and on Easter Sunday. And so Paul tells us, everything is from God who has reconciled to himself, us, to himself through Christ. So Christ did it first for us. We've been reconciled to God and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The very next verse reminds us, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to who? To us. He's given us this message. Therefore, we go out as ambassadors. 
for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Restore this relationship. It is the job that we have been given. So whether we're a teacher, whether we're an accountant, whether we're retired, whether, whatever, whether we work construction, whatever it is that our job is, God says to us, you, you can use that job to help restore the relationship of a broken world and broken people to me. That's our job. And we get to do a part of it. We get to be a part of it. So the first piece that we deal with is how do we balance vocation? Well, we understand what our job is. The second piece is, well, what do we, what do, we do with freedom? Well, Paul tells us, we're going to stay with Paul, Galatians chapter, five, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 5, 13, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But how do we use our freedom? Through, through service. By serving one another through love. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if we are the people of God who are to be balancing these three things together, we balance vocation and we balance freedom. What do we do with our freedom? Paul tells us there are people that think, well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do with it. And Paul says, don't, don't use it as an opportunity to do things of this world, to do things of the flesh. Use it as an opportunity to serve, to love, to show people what it looks like to be loved by God. And in doing so, what do we do? We help that reconciliation piece happen. So, vocation, freedom. Now what do we do? with constraint or with prohibition. John tells us in his epistle, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, I don't know how we got to this verse. Heather, would you go back to the verse 18? I don't know how we got here. Let's go back to the garden just for a moment. Adam and Eve are weighing out these three things, vocation, freedom, constraint. Here's the problem that every one of us deals with. The story that Eve is dealing with and that Adam is dealing with is that God said, here are the parameters of life. And I'm putting these parameters on your life because I want to protect you. There are things that we should not be a part of. There are things that bring harm to us. And God wants to protect us from those things. And the serpent. The serpent says to Eve, but wait. Wait, wait just for a moment. Because you think that God's trying to protect you, but God just wants to keep you from all these other things. 
They're not going to hurt you. And the problem is, is that perfect love casts out fear. Our problem is, is that for the man and the woman in this story, they learned something different. That perfect fear casts out love. That they were consumed with the things that they might miss. They were consumed with these other things and they missed the opportunity to love. And all that they're left with is desire. All that they're left with is more, more, more. And God says to us, I, I want you to know something. I, I created you, and you're enough. I, I created you, and the serpent, the devil, wants to tell you the only way that you can be more is if you take more than what I've given you. But you are enough. I've made you more than enough. I've given you a vocation. I've given you freedom. And inside of that, I've also put boundaries on your life to protect you. I've put boundaries on your life so that you can understand what life is. So you can live in that life. Our problem is, is that we struggle so many times to trust God. To trust that what God has done to us is actually protection. Our failure to trust God with our lives leads to death. If you go back and you flip back into that Genesis passage, one of the things that just strikes me, if you move into chapter 3 after the fall, it says, The Lord God called out to man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and everything changes right here. Adam says, I heard you in the garden. But I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid. What went from a relationship with God turned into a relationship with himself. And learning to be the people of God who balance together what does it mean for vocation, for freedom, to have constraint on our lives, or to be people of God who say, this is the relationship I'm focusing on. Lord, I, I know that you have put limits on my life. And Lord, I, I, want, I want to embrace those limits because you're putting those limits on to protect me. We have these conversations with our kids somewhat regularly, but I think it's a conversation that we forget sometimes. When you walk through your teenage years, and I can remember these years, they were a long time ago, but I still, 30 years ago, still, I still remember them. My kids don't think I do, but I do. And I can remember getting left out of things. Do y'all remember that? There were things that you wanted to do and you get left out or things, friends that you wanted to be a part of and you get left out and you feel like you got left out and it hurts. And I can remember my mom saying something to me that I didn't want to hear. 
My mom would say something to the effect of, John, maybe God has put that hedge of protection around you. Maybe you don't need to be a part of that. Whatever that is that's going on, maybe you don't need to be there. Now, as a teenager, I didn't like that response. As a 46-year-old parent of two teenagers, I think it's the perfect response. Because I've lived enough that I know it's true. Because I've lived enough to know that God protects us in the way that our parents protect us. And we read this story of creation, and for so many of us, we get focused on what we're not supposed to do. And we miss the beauty of a life with a God that says, I've called you. I've given you purpose in life. I've given you a vocation. I've also given you an incredible amount of freedom. Freedom to love. Freedom to show people that they matter. Freedom to serve other people. Freedom to live out a phenomenal life. But part of that freedom is also understanding that there are boundaries to life. There are things that you shouldn't be a part of. There are things that you don't need to do because those things bring death. Those things bring fear. Those things bring things into your life that you don't want into your life. And it's God's people. From the very beginning, we're told there is a way to live. And my hope for us as we walk through this series is that we hear the words that we're building our lives on what matters. That we're looking for God's action in our world. That we're taking an opportunity to look at our lives and say, what are the choices that I'm making? How does it flow around vocation, around freedom, but also around constraint and around the boundaries that God has put on my life? Because those boundaries aren't there to hurt you. Those boundaries are there to give you life, to give you freedom. Today, as we close, my prayer and my hope for us is that we learn what it is to live in those boundaries, to learn what it is to live in that love, to learn what it is to trust in a God who says, I want to provide for you. I want to give you life. I want to give you beauty and hope and grace and mercy. And I want you to be a people that live that And as we walk through this series, that's, that's my hope, that's my prayer for us, is that we come to be those people. I know as we normally close, we have an altar call, but I think today's one of those days where I just want to pray for us. I just want to pray and then read our words or our watchword as we go. But for us to go as the people that know that we have been given life. You matter. God created you. God created you with purpose. God has given you life. He's given you freedom. He's given you a job. And he also protects us from so much that this world wants to war and wants to bring upon our soul. Lord, today as we go, may we go knowing loves us beyond anything that we could imagine. A God who, when we look back at those stories, a God who has created for us an azer, a helper. A God who walks with us through life.
Lord, in those moments in our lives when we struggle, when we, we struggle with those boundaries, when we struggle with that loss of what we feel like is a loss of freedom, Lord, may we hear the psalmist's cry, that Lord, may we trust in you, may you be our helper, may you be our shield, may you be our lives. Lord, I pray that we as your people could go and as we walk through the Old Testament together this year, that we go knowing that there is a God who is still active, a God who is still bringing life, a God who is still working. And may we rest in the fact of knowing that there is a God who loves us. Lord, be with us today. Help us to learn what it is to balance the vocation that you have given us, the freedom that you have given us, and to see the beauty of the boundaries that you have placed upon our lives. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. This morning, may we be reminded that sin doesn't get the last word, but grace does. That lies don't get the last word, but truth does. That evil doesn't get the last word, but good does. That darkness doesn't get the last word, but light does. That death doesn't get the last word, but life does. May we go this morning in the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior. Amen.